Well, tonight we are continuing in our series on the book of Philippians. And uh, as you may have noticed before, we are surrounded by the book and something very exciting. We get to move from page one to page two tonight. So if you would open up your Bibles. Yes, that's cheering. Thank you, Lene. Page 953. I hope by now there's a crease in that page, like your Bible just pops open there. We've been studying it. Last week we heard from Pastor Mary and reminded us that the gospel is more than, you may remember, cookies and recess. The gospel, God's call is more than cookies and recess. Well, we pick up at verse 12 of chapter 1. Verse 12 of chapter 1, and we're going to read through 18a. The word of the Lord. Here we go. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dared to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaimed Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These these proclaimed Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And in that, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Dad, may I use the hose? It seems like such a straightforward question. Dad, may I use the hose? But if you parent a five-year-old, you know that for every question that's posed, there's a question that sits behind it. And it's the role of every parent to try to figure out what is that question behind the initial question. Because dad, may I use the hose, could mean dad, may I fill the basement up with water and turn it into a swimming pool. (laughs) Thus the reason for trying to anticipate what is that next question. Well, it was earlier this summer when my five-year-old son, Quincy, asked, Dad, may I use the hose? Reluctantly, I said, yes, trying to anticipate what that next question may be. Well, it, it turned out to be quite simple. He wanted to pull it away from the hose. He wanted to set it in the lawn there, and then he wanted to, to see where the water went. It was sort of a, a discovery for him. He wanted to uncover what mystery might lie behind this. And so we turned on the hose, not too much. We didn't want to waste too much water. Uh, But we wanted to give him a chance to be curious. And so we turned on the water, and it began to sort of slide across the lawn in our East Town uh, front yard. And then it went across the lawn, and it went down onto the sidewalk, and it found a crack, and it slid through the crack, making its way toward the street. Well, Quincy quickly realized that he didn't want the water to go out on the street. He didn't want it to be able to jump over the curb and go toward who knows where. He wanted to be able to contain the water. And so he went, like a five-year-old would, and he decided he would dam it up. So he went and he found rocks and sticks, and he decided that he would strategically place the rocks and the stones and everything else so that the water would pool. 
He figured that if it was high enough, thick enough, that even the, the, the pool of water that was only rising ever so slowly would be contained there, and he would have prevented the water from being lost into the street forever. Forever. This was a serious day's work for a five-year-old boy, let me tell you. Well, the, tonight in our text, we read about a group of people who thought they could contain the gospel. And the way that Quincy tried to contain the water, the Roman officials thought that they could contain the gospel, that they could create a dam, that they could create a way of preventing it from spreading. Well, of course, they weren't using sticks and stones and dirt. Uh, just in a slightly different form, they were using walls and chains and guards. And so they thought if with Paul in prison, we've, we've solved the case. Mystery solved. Problems taken care of. We have done it. All in a day's work. The Gospels contain no more problems. Paul, you see, had been thrown into prison. He'd been accused of, of claiming Jesus Christ as the new king. And so the Roman officials wanted to intervene quickly, and they did so. They put him behind bars. And so Paul paid a significant price for proclaiming the gospel. He did so at a tremendous professional cost. You see, if you're a traveling preacher and you can't travel and it's going to be hard to preach, that's slightly problematic. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his book this week, in our study that we've done, compares it to a concert pianist having his hands tied behind his back Paul could no longer do the thing that he was called to do, that he had been equipped to do. And so Paul had to move forward at a great profession, was in prison at a great professional cost. But you can imagine that this was also at a great personal cost to Paul. You see, Paul had been traveling. Paul had developed quite a network of friends throughout different cities, brothers and sisters in Christ that had become his true family. And now all of a sudden he was separated from them. He was no longer able to go out and do the ministry that he so loved to do and had been called to do. He could no longer travel to new cities and preach the gospel at the synagogue. He could no longer gather with women along the riverside the way that he had with Lydia and others in Philippi. He could no longer visit the new places. He could no longer visit the old and encourage the old friends. He was stuck. He was behind bars. He was prevented, it seemed, from doing the thing that he had been called to do. But, but what was it that the Roman officials were so concerned about exactly? I mean, why imprison Paul? I mean, what's the big deal if this guy wants to run around the countryside and say, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, you all need to know, Jesus is king. I mean, couldn't they just write this guy off as a lunatic? Couldn't they just say, like, who knows what this guy's talking about? Why so confrontational? Well, in, in some ways, it would be comparing today if the, the Tea Party had held a, a uh, they were going to have a vote, and they decided that they were going to have a new president and say, well, President Obama, you're out. We voted somebody new in. You see, the, the Roman uh, Empire already had a king. They had an emperor, Caesar, and he was lord. He was the one who was in charge of the land. He was the one who ruled it. And so as Paul went all over, the, all over the territory proclaiming that Jesus is king, there is a new king in town, and he is the name that everyone will fall under. Well, this was a highly controversial thing to say. 
This was highly problematic for the, the local officials who said, uh, if there's a new king, why haven't we heard about it? You see, Paul's claim was confrontational. Paul's claim demanded a response, and the Roman officials gave him one. They threw him in, they threw him in prison. And so it seemed that Paul's imprisonment had prevented the gospel from being spread. That when he was put behind bars and his hands were in chains, that he would no longer be able to accomplish the work that God called him to. It seems to me that at times that is a similar fate for many of us in the church over its history. That there have been certain circumstances, certain events that have seemed or appeared to block the spread of the gospel. You see, just a few years after Jesus lived, it was Nero who was killing Christians all over the kingdom, persecuting them in extreme, in extreme ways. And ever since then, leaders across time have found it sometimes even almost sport to, to persecute Christians. Now, but we may sit here in a North American context and say, well, our lives aren't at stake here. So that doesn't seem as if that's going to be the thing that prevents the gospel from being spread in our context. So, so what are some of the things? Well, if it's not persecution here, maybe it's social alienation. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's the fear of what people might say. Maybe it's the pluralist society we live in and we think, I don't want to make an exclusive claim to Jesus Christ. I don't want to say that he's the only way. I mean, there's so many options out there. Who am I to say that Jesus is the only way? Even though he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But can we really trust Jesus' words all the time? So maybe it's that fear of social, social alienation or rejection. Maybe for others of it's, it's, it's simply apathy. I'm... We're way, 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 way too busy with all the homework that we have to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to apply for a job. I have to pay for school somehow. How am I, I better spend time doing that. I mean, that takes so much time. I don't have time to, to be evangelizing and telling my friends or telling other people about the gospel. And, you know, I'm on this athletic team and I'm in this choir and I've got all these demands. C certainly, God couldn't ask me to be the one who advances the gospel to, sp to spread the good news. Who, I think for some of us, it may be, maybe it's bad theology. We hide behind the wall of God's sovereignty and providence and think, ah, God will do it. I mean, if he's going to accomplish all of his purposes anyway, I mean, that kind of leaves me off the hook, right? I mean, God's going to do it whether I get involved or not. And so some of us are really comfortable having friends, roommates, teammates, family members, people we spend our whole lives with. And we, we share meals and we exchange gifts. We trade tips. We swap clothes. But do we ever utter the name of Jesus? For some of us, the answer is no. It seems like that's somebody else's job. God's going to do it anyway, so... I'd rather not get involved. I'd rather not have to go through the uncomfortable sort of conversation that that might lead to. And so there's times in which it appears in our setting today, the way that it did in Philippians with Paul, 
that the gospel's somehow prevented, that the, the, that the gospel's been dammed up, that somehow there's been enough sticks and stones and sand, there's been enough guards and chains and walls to, to curb the gospel, to prevent it from spreading. And as a result, it's, it's just pooling up in the same place. It's not going out and accomplishing the purposes that God had intended. But I, I hope we all know that looks can be mighty deceiving. And that what appears to be the way things are doesn't always reflect the way that things really are. You see, when we turn to the text, we find that Paul begins in a very unusual place. If you, if you have your Bibles open on page 953, you'll see that he says, I want you to know. And when I read the phrase, I want you to know, knowing that Paul has written this letter from, from prison, he hasn't written it from like the the French Riviera. He's not on the Mediterranean Sea. He's writing it from prison that when he begins by saying, I want you to know, I just stop there for a minute and kind of insert myself and think, if I'm in prison, I'm writing to friends I haven't seen for a long time who I really like and they really like me, I think I begin with something like, I want you to know I'm in prison. What I most want you to know is I haven't seen my bed in months. I haven't had my favorite meal for as long as I can remember. I'm tired of being away from all of you so much. I want you to know where I am. That seems to me how the letter would, would start if I wrote it. But it's not where Paul begins. We see that Paul begins by saying, I want you to know, beloved, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. You see, what he does is he takes his circumstances and puts them behind him and says, what I want you to know is th those things, well, that's really not all that important. What I want you to know is that the gospel has been advanced because of my circumstances. What the, what the Roman officials thought would happen how it might damn things up and they would not allow the gospel to go forth the way that it was intended? Hasn't worked. Hasn't worked. You see, I'm spending all of my time with the imperial guards. Now, when you hear imperial guards, think secret service. These are the people who have been trained to protect the emperor or to protect the emperor's interests. So these are highly trained people. Some anticipate or estimate that there was up to 9,000 imperial guards. So Paul is spending all of these time with these officials, these guards who are close to the emperor. They are near the center of power in all of the kingdom. And Paul says, I have tons of time with these people. And if you can imagine, there are certain conversations that just aren't relevant anymore once you're in prison. I mean, nobody asks, so what are you going to do this weekend? Nobody asks, so where do you do your shopping anyway? Nobody asks, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun when you're not, oh, wait, you're always here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So what other questions can I ask? Uh, you see, there's a, a really common question. It seems to me it's often the first question when you encounter somebody in prison, which I've been able to, to visit prisons on uh, quite a number of occasions. And the, the first question that's asked, does anybody have any, any, any guess? What are you in here for? That's what everybody wants to know. When I was in prison the first time a number of years ago, I sat down and had a chance to interact with some of the inmates. I was just dying to ask them, what are you in here for? And so it seems to me the imperial guards and others who are interacting with Paul would have likely asked him, 
So what are you here for? Expecting to hear the, the comment, I killed somebody, I slept with somebody I wasn't supposed to, I told the, the emperor something that I shouldn't have said. I mean, a whole variety of things. But Paul, what does Paul say? I'm in here because of the gospel. I'm in here because of Jesus Christ. I just can't stop talking about him. Do you, do you have time? I'd love to tell you more about him. And all of a sudden, he's off and running in a conversation. And so Paul says, listen, I've only been here for a while, but now the entire imperial guard, 9,000 people strong, they know about Jesus. I can't stop talking about him, and everybody keeps asking me about him. It's, it's working great. These people want to hear about it, and I want to tell them. So Paul says, listen, they thought that they were going to stop the spread of the gospel through this little plan of theirs. It's not working. I'm getting a chance to tell everybody I see around here. I've got a congregation of 9,000 people in here. It's great. And the bad news is I'm not leaving anytime soon. They can't get rid of the pastor. <laughs> but he says, not only that, not only do the Imperial Guard now know, but I've, I've heard that word has spread outside, outside the prison. People have heard about my example and found that I have been able to, to share the gospel right here in prison in the middle of my circumstances and God has used it in their lives to spur them on and to encourage them and to give them boldness. And now people outside the prison are, are sharing the gospel. They're telling people that Jesus is king and that there's a new kingdom coming down from heaven to earth. And we get to be a part of it. You see, the Roman officials thought that this was going to squash the gospel. They thought that they were going to be able to contain it by getting Paul in prison. If he's in prison, the gospel's not going to be able to spread the same way that Quincy thought that by damming up the water with rocks and stones was going to prevent it from heading into the street. But what they found out, what Quincy found out was if, if the water just keeps coming, the water slowly rises. And at some point, there's a weak spot. And all of a sudden, a stick or a stone or some of the stand gives way and the water leaked out into the street, which of course made Quincy furious and he ran to get more sticks and stones because he thought he was going to be able to somehow get it to stop. And there's an evil one. We know that the, there's good and evil in our world. There is the prince of light and there's the prince of darkness. And you can be assured that any time the gospel gets out that the evil one is there to try to to make the walls higher and thicker and to prevent ways. But what we see in the story is that no matter how much the evil one may try, that the gospel is unstoppable. You can't contain it. You can't prevent it from doing the work that God had intended to do through it. As, as Paul's living through this, he has an extraordinary perspective on it. I mean, he sees the events in the, of his life, the things that he is living in, and is somehow able to say to people, even in the midst of prison, God's accomplishing his work. I mean, it's extraordinary. It, it almost makes me wonder if, if Paul may have heard the, the, the Zen proverb of the lucky farmer. Has anybody heard this before? There, there once was a farmer who had a had one horse, had a son and a horse, and he was there, and the, one day his horse ran away. The neighbors came over to him and sympathetically said, oh, your horse ran away, what bad luck? And the farmer says, maybe. Well, the next day, the horse that ran away returned and brought with it two wild horses, 
And the neighbors ran over and said, what good luck. And the farmer said, maybe. The following day, the young son tries to ride one of the untamed horses and he falls off and he breaks his leg. And the neighbors are there to say, what bad luck. And the farmer responds, maybe. Well, the following day, army officials come to the village and they're there for a draft. And they see that the young son's leg is broken and they pass him by. He can't go on the draft and the neighbors are there to celebrate and say, oh, what good luck. And the farmer responds, maybe. It seems to me that Paul, in the midst of his circumstances, as he is there in prison and people are saying, oh, what bad luck. I can't believe this happened to you. Things were going so well. The churches were being planted. The gospel was going forth. Oh, but now you're here in prison. Oh, oh, this isn't what we had planned. I wonder if if Paul was there saying, maybe. Maybe this is right where God wants me. Maybe the the kingdom's going to come because I'm here in prison and I get a chance to to preach the gospel to 9,000 imperial guards. Maybe more people outside the prison are going to be emboldened and have courage to preach the gospel more boldly and courageously than ever before because of my example. Maybe. Somehow in the midst of his circumstances, Paul is able to see that what has happened to him could be restored, could be returned for good that God could accomplish his purpose in spite of his circumstances or maybe even through his circumstances. I wonder about about how all of us respond in those circumstances. How do we respond when things don't go our way, when things don't turn out the way that we expected, when things seem to be derailed? What happens when we get cut from the team that we've worked so hard to make? What happens when we don't get the job that we were just perfect for? What happens when the relationship that we have invested deeply in and brings us great joy just falls apart? What story do we tell? When people ask us, do we say, what I want you to know is I didn't make the team. I want you to know that I didn't get the job. I want you to know that the relationship fell apart. Or do we have some opportunity, do we have some way of of doing what Paul did and have instead say, I want you to know that in spite of the pain of this circumstance, that God's accomplishing his purpose in my life and in his world. And even though I don't fully understand it, I've been able to trust that that just maybe, maybe God's going to be able to do in this what only he can do. So I wonder, what story do you tell? When we think about the gospel being advanced in in surprising ways, I think of a story from just a couple weeks ago. I was home at the school that I went through from K to 12. It was celebrating its 100th year anniversary. And while I was there, I ran into my third grade teacher. You know, I've, let's see, I was like uh, 10, and now I'm 32. So like 22 years has passed. She was old when she was my third grade teacher. She did not look much different. 
but I saw her, and we had a chance to talk. And then later on, I talked to somebody who knows her well and was telling me about what she's done. She retired many years ago, and she volunteers extensively. One of the things she's doing now is she's joined together with an ecumenical group in this small town where I grew up. People from all different churches who come together on a weekly basis and pray. They pray across denominational lines and they just pray for the community. And then some of the times that they gather, they get in their cars and they drive around and they go to the local schools and they go to the local businesses and they pray. They pray for the people who are there. And sometimes when they go, they'll just they'll park their car on Main Street and they'll walk down and they'll go into every business. They'll go into the, the auto parts place and say, is, is there anything that, that we could pray for you for? And then often there are requests and they'll they'll pray right there on the spot and say, may the peace of Christ be with you in the midst of whatever circumstance they might be going through. So they do that. They go into the auto parts place. They go into the flower shop. They walk into the bank. And I heard the story last week that she, at one of her most recent trips out, she went to the bar. And I was imagining my very old third grade teacher (laughs) of this small Christian school walking in with her rimmed glasses and her very conservative dress into the bar in my small town and sitting up on a bar next to whoever might be there and saying, can I pray for you? But you know something? That's exactly what she did. And the owners of the bar were there and they said, actually, things have been really tough lately. Finances are exceptionally uh, tight and we're not sure how long we're going to stay in business. And this is, uh, provides jobs for me and for many others. Would you pray for us? And my third grade teacher said, yes, let's pray together right here, right now. And she prayed. And as I heard that story, I thought about the gospel going forth in unexpected ways. And as she's reflected on this time, she said, you know, I was a Christian school teacher for over 30 years. And the number of times that I witnessed, the number of times I I directly told other people about the good news in Jesus Christ were far too few. And she goes, I'm not exactly sure what it is. There's something about age that has given me a sense of urgency about the gospel, of telling people far and wide, near and close, about the good news in Jesus Christ. And I thought, you go, Mrs. Borgman. (laughs) I found it so inspiring. And I couldn't hear her story without thinking about my own and think, Aaron, how often... How often do you let neighbors who you know well, how often do you let students who you encounter, how often do you let family members who you love and care about deeply come and go without ever telling them about the the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in this world and in my life? And rather than feeling guilty, I felt inspired. I thought if she can do it, I can do this. God has invited each one of us to, to share the good news of the gospel The evil one is there trying to prevent it from going forth, from prevent it from spreading and use a whole variety of means. But the good news of the gospel is it cannot be stopped. God will accomplish his purposes. He tells us in his word. And what I think is so exciting is he invites us, fallen, broken, messed up people like you and me to be a part of it. People like Paul who had spent a good part of his life persecuting Christians, he turns them around, he Paul repents and he goes in a different direction so that he can tell the good news of the gospel. And as I think about this invitation, I I wonder what what allowed Paul to do it. I mean, 
Was it that Paul knew that he wasn't the, the first one to be thrown in prison, falsely accused? Did Paul know that he wasn't the first one to, to endure great persecution, pain, and suffering because he told about a, a new king and a new kingdom? Because you see, the, the life that Paul followed, the circumstances of Paul's life follow in the footsteps of Jesus, one who was thrown in jail, suffered under officials' hands, beaten, treated with complete disrespect, knowing that his sacrifice, knowing that his example would, would lead to resurrection, would lead to the third day would lead to new hope and new life for other people who would come to follow. And so as Paul walks this road, he, he thinks, I'm simply following in the footsteps of Jesus, one who's traveled this road before me. Tonight, through Paul's words to the church in Philippi, we are invited to proclaim the good news of the gospel to proclaim that the Lord has come and is coming back. And tonight we have the great privilege of coming to the table. When Jesus taught his disciples at that first Lord's Supper, he said, do this, and as often as you do this, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God invites us, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To do it here at the table tonight as we break the bread and as we drink the cup. And he calls us and he invites us to do it in our everyday, ordinary lives. That as the people we encounter, wherever it might be, the people that we encounter, to tell them about Jesus. To tell them there's a new king and there's a new kingdom and it is one of life and joy. And it's so good that you wouldn't want to walk past anyone without making sure they know about it. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus came to a table with his disciples. And he took a loaf of bread. He said... This bread is my body. This bread is my body. Take it, eat it, and remember that the precious body of your Lord Jesus Christ was given for your sins. And then after supper, in the same way, he took the cup and filled it up and said, this, this wine, this juice is the new blood of my covenant the new covenant of my blood. Drink it. As often as you drink it, you drink of this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you tell others about Jesus. You tell them that there's a group of people who are waiting for the king to come back. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but we wait together. And that's why we gather around the table tonight to remind ourselves and to remind each other that the king's coming back.